Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. We do welcome you here at Central Campus, as well as those of you who are joining us online, and the rest of our church family that's meeting together at one of our regional campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, in Crowfoot, in Northwest Calgary, and also those of you meeting in South Calgary with Pastors Tim and Jason. Uh, Just a little story on Pastor Tim. Pastor Tim and I, we have been hockey buddies for over 25 years, and I've never had to miss a game uh, because of injury. That is until this past September uh, when I was out with a broken rib for about four weeks, thanks to Pastor Tim, (laughs) who says he had no idea he elbowed me from behind. But God did. God saw. And I believe that, uh, believe me, I, I knew that that he did as well. But I want you to know that, that all those nights when I couldn't sleep because of pain and because of discomfort, I kept telling the Lord to forgive Pastor Tim for he knew not what he did. And uh, you know, the Bible says that one of the redemptive things that comes from hardship uh, is that we can empathize with those that um, go through what we've gone through. Uh, well, this past week, uh, Pastor Tim's back seized up for several days. I mean, really seized up. Uh, he could hardly walk. And, uh, you know, just for the record, I had absolutely nothing to do with that. Um, he did it all by himself. And, uh, but I had such empathy for him. I really did. I, I just kept telling him, I know exactly how you feel. And, uh, but we, you know, we, we prayed for him. And uh, last time I checked, he was doing much better. But anyways, blessings to you, Pastor Tim, and your team, and all of you meeting down at our South Regional. We're in a series on generosity, and so far in our study, we've learned that all that we have is given to us from the gracious hand of God, and when we trust Him, when we are generous with what He has given to us, God uses our faithfulness to not only bless, but also to impact the eternal trajectory of those that He brings into our lives. Now, one of the questions that we've been wrestling with in this series is what is it that keeps us from being sacrificially generous? Many of us, of course, you know, we're, we're generous, but a lot of times it's not in a sacrificial way. What is it that causes us to resist this notion of giving, uh, uh, being generous in a sacrificial way? Well, some people struggle being sacrificially generous because of fear. They question the goodness of God, and they fear that if they actually are generous, uh, that God's not going to provide for their needs, not, you know, not going to be able to pay the rent, buy groceries. Others resist being generous because they define their worth by what they have rather than by who they are in the eyes of God. And so they don't want to part with their stuff because to do so would be to erode away what defines them and and, and gives them value. But perhaps the greatest reason people aren't generous in our nation is because they're up to their eyeballs in debt. They couldn't be generous even if they wanted to be. They have no financial margin, no room uh, or freedom to be generous. And that is what I want to focus on in this message. 
what the Bible has to say about how we can move from financial bondage to financial freedom and so that we can be set free from all of the stress and the anxiety that comes with financial bondage and experience the joy of generosity. But before we get into it, I'm going to invite you to stand with me again and join me in dedicating this time to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for being such an amazingly generous God. All that we have comes from you. And Lord, all you ask from us is that we would be generous as you have been generous with us. Teach us, Lord, today how we can be freed from the bondage of indebtedness. And give us, Lord, the courage to respond in whatever way you would have us to. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Financial expert Dr. Larry Burkett says, the major cause of divorce today is in the area of finances. In fact, he says, when you peel back all of the surface issues and you get to the root of the problem, research tells us that 80% of divorces can be attributed to finances in one way or another. This is how it typically happens. A couple start out by purchasing in about three years what it took their parents about 30 years to accumulate. But with easy credit available, they are lured into buying it now and soon they find themselves in financial bondage. And as a result of excessive debt, they now have a lot of financial pressure in their lives. And over time, the pressure of overdue bills and having no financial margin starts to get to them. They are so stressed that they don't talk like they used to. In fact, they hardly talk at all. Rather than being companions, now they are more like combatants. They don't read the Bible like they used to. They stop praying. They stop going to church. They begin withdrawing from their small group of friends. And everything they talk about centers around how they're going to pay for their escalating bills. Accusations start flying like, you don't make enough. You spend too much. And then far from God and very much alone, it's only a matter of time until an unexpected loss of employment or an unexpected major bill or pregnancy causes one or both of them to snap. And we have another marriage on the rocks. Financial bondage is a reality in many marriages today, but this isn't solely limited to marriage, this issue. This is a problem that exists in the lives of most people quite apart from their marital status. It is an issue that is a reality in our nation and around the world. And this problem is reaching epidemic levels. The research shows that something like 80% of people in North America owe more than they own. Not too long ago, Time Magazine reported that on average, for every $1,000 that we make, we are putting $1,300 on our credit cards. Hello? I mean, is it any wonder why so many people are stressed out these days? Well, our God doesn't want us living this way. 
Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Whether married or single, God wants our lives to be characterized by a love and a joy and a deep-seated peace and contentment that surpasses all human understanding. And toward that end, we find at least um, three principles in Scripture that help us to achieve financial freedom. I want us to turn in your, uh, your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, while you're turning to that, let me give you a little background. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul is telling the believers at Corinth, who are well off financially, by the way. So he's telling these people at Corinth about the incredible generosity of the believers of Macedonia, which, or, or ancient Greece who are not only poor, but facing significant persecution. Remember, these are the people, or among the people, from the church of Philippi that supported Paul and brought some very needed supplies to him while he was in prison. These are the same people. And yet this, so these people are, are, are facing poverty, they're facing persecution, and yet this is how Paul describes them in verse 2. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, which means without any outside um, pressure or coercion, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. These people were dirt poor, but they weren't all stressed out. They weren't panicking. They weren't biting their nails. No, they were joyful. They were passionate about the Lord and about the work of the Lord and about being generous. So how is that possible? Well, look at verse 5. It says, they gave themselves first of all, to the Lord. That's the first principle for financial freedom. Trust God. True freedom of any kind, financial or otherwise, is found in God and God alone. That is the foundation. Sooner or later, every person has to make up their mind about who they're going to trust. Because as I pointed out last time, who you trust in not only influences your lifestyle, but the level of your contentment within. You see, if you believe that your existence is limited to the years here on earth, then your priorities, your definition of success, your ambitions will be significantly different than the person who believes that this world is not our permanent home, that we're just passing through. Now, you know, we all have faith in something or someone, whether we want to admit it or not. We all listen to or copy someone. And so as people in our culture grapple with finding meaning in life, many will put their faith in others. And they will say, now, if I could be like so-and-so, or if I could have what so-and-so has, then I'd be happy. 
I'd be successful and I'd be content in life. And that way of thinking impacts their values, their priorities, and their lifestyle. Some people, for example, seek to emulate their parents. In some cases, they don't even respect their parents all that much, but they like their parents' lifestyle and often assume that such a, a lifestyle is a kind of birthright that they should enjoy as well, something they deserve. Other people seek to emulate their peers or their siblings. They reason, if my friends or my siblings can have it all, why can't I? And sometimes an insecure or an insensitive spouse will hurt and egg on the primary breadwinner of the home with disrespectful comments like, well, we'll never be able to afford that with Harry's salary. And so Harry, in an attempt to save face, in an attempt to somehow gain or keep the respect of his, his spouse and, and his family, will purchase things beyond their capacity to afford. Buying a new car for her birthday, a gold watch for their anniversary, or a home that will suck up almost half or more of their income and mortgage payments. Or someone among a group of friends buys a larger this or a nicer that. And it's like rabbits multiplying. Soon everyone is buying the same thing, whether they need it or not. Well, I don't need to tell you that this is a recipe for disaster and for living way beyond our means. And other than the church, there aren't many voices encouraging us to live within our means, to live simply so that others can simply live. Everywhere you turn, the message being machine-gunned into our heads by every form of media is eat, drink, and be merry and put it all on MasterCard. Billions of dollars are being spent every year to get us to do one thing, to believe that we need whatever it is they're selling. And you can have it all with no money down and no payments for three years. But hardly anyone thinks about the implications of those payments kicking in in three years. Few people talk about the monthly statements, the interest charges, the past due letters, and the foreclosure notices. No one talks much about the psychological and emotional bondage and anxiety that comes from indebtedness, bondage that drains the joy out of every single day. The Bible is right when it says in Proverbs 22.7, the borrower becomes a slave to the lender. And then a tragedy like a tsunami or a typhoon hits. And we see pictures on television of hungry, homeless kids. We see pictures of families who have lost everything. Or we come to church, and we hear about all the needs that the, uh, of the hurting that we as a church are ministering to locally or, or globally. Or, or we, we hear about all the opportunities there are to impact the lives of hurting children and youth and adults right here in Calgary. And we'd like to join in. We'd like to help out. 
But we can't. Because we're taking on extra shifts. We're taking on extra projects, even additional part-time jobs, all to pay for the stuff that, if we're honest, we really don't need and often have little time to enjoy, if at all. We'd like to support the mission of the church financially. We'd like to help out with those suffering the devastating effects of a typhoon, but we can't because we've got no margin in our finances to do so. Here in our scripture text, Paul points to the Christ followers in Macedonia, in ancient Greece, who are poor, and yet they're joy-filled. And he says, how different is the road traveled by those who not only put their faith in Jesus for eternal life, but actually trust Jesus enough to believe what he says really matters in this life and follow him and do what he calls them to do daily. People who trust Jesus on a consistent daily basis and align their lives to his agenda, they make an amazing discovery. And that is that he satisfies their soul at the deepest level. In Psalm 103, verse 5, King David says, Our God satisfies. And a live and a growing friendship with Jesus Christ gives us an eternal perspective of life and injects so much meaning and joy into your life that, that over time, there is a kind of curious detachment from the need to be on the road of acquisition that leads to a consumptive lifestyle. The problem for too many of us is that we want to somehow straddle the fence. We kind of want the best of both worlds. Years ago, Olivia Newton-John had a hit song about an illicit love relationship. And part of the song went like this. If loving you is wrong, then I don't want to be right. You know, some of us have a similar attitude with respect to our financial resources and our tendency to overconsume. If loving money, if loving stuff is wrong, then I don't want to be right. I don't want to hear the truth. This also applies to the way that we're investing our time and our abilities. One of the reasons that our lives are on tilt is because we have a myriad of really good things of what to do with our time. And often we're running from here to there, trying to cram all these good things into our lives. And sadly, so often, we're also trying to cram them into the already overcrowded schedule of our children. We've got them lined up doing things every night of the week because we don't want them missing any possible opportunity. But here's my point. Our lives will continue to be frantic until we determine who it is we're going to trust, what our highest value is in this life, and then order our lives around that highest value. But make no mistake, that will not be easy. It will involve having to make very difficult decisions between the good 
and the best. It will involve us stopping, sitting down with those that we care about most and asking each other some hard questions. Is all that we are doing, when we look at all that we're doing, what is really going to matter to us in the end? And more importantly, what's really going to matter to Jesus in the end? The one that we say is our Lord and King and the object of our highest affection. Until we do that, our lives will be chaotic, weary, and full of good, but ultimately lesser things. And we'll never receive or experience the best things, the high adventure that God wants for us. We all want satisfaction for our souls. But the Bible says it is found in a friendship with God and not a toy or activity or some earthly achievement. The first principle to financial freedom is trust God. The second is to plan wisely. Look at verse 7. Paul says, but since you excel in everything, again, he's talking to the Corinthians here, since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Paul is essentially challenging the believers at Corinth to establish a plan where they will grow in their generosity, a plan that will give them margin in their finances to be generous, the way that the believers back in Greece were generous with what little they had. Jay Link says, we choose to live our lives in one of two ways. We either live our lives on purpose or we live our lives by accident. In other words, you can prayerfully plan your life and then live your plan or you can simply react to the events and circumstances of life and let them take you wherever they will. Now, some people believe that making plans is unspiritual. However, we know that God makes plans. In Jeremiah 29, 11, the Lord says to his people, I know the plans that I have for you. In Romans 15, 24, and also in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 15, we read the Apostle Paul made plans. And in Proverbs 21, 5, we're encouraged to make plans. It says this, the plan of the diligent, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. Proverbs 27, 23 says, be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds, for riches do not endure forever. Well, what those scriptures are saying is we need to give focused attention to how we're managing the resources that God has entrusted to us. Financial freedom isn't something that you just kind of drift into. No, financial freedom to those who are aware, are, are, comes to those who are aware of where their money is going. Those who have a God-honoring financial plan. When I talk to people who are under great financial pressure, in many cases I discover they don't have a financial plan or a budget. They just spend and they pay their bills and they hope it all pans out in the end. And it usually doesn't. You see, budgeting 
is telling your money where you want it to go rather than wondering where it went. You become the director. You manage your money rather than letting your money manage you. For example, do me a favor. Just reach into your pocket or into your wallet and pull out, you know, a bill, whatever you find there. You know, $5 bill, $50 bill, $100 bill, $1,000 bill. Just pull it out, okay? Just kind of have it in front, a little object lesson, all right? I pulled out the biggest one I had, $5. Okay, so here it is. Now, some of you are looking at that toonie in your hand right now, and you're saying, yep, that's about what I make every day after taxes. Anyways, okay. Now, you can do one of five things with the money you have in your hand. Um, option number one is you can spend it. Option number two is you can repay a debt or part of a debt that you owe with it. Option number three, you can pay your taxes with it. Num option number four is you can save it. And option five is you can give it away. And since we're in church, I think this would be a good time to exercise this option, don't you? <laughs> Ushers, let's have a second offering. Yes. <laughs> All right. But, but here's my point. Every paycheck that you receive will be spent in one or more of these five ways. There are no other options. Well, I want you to keep that in mind as I introduce you to a financial plan that's based on the principles of Scripture. First of all, give your first and your best to God. We honor God when we give him the best of our time and our ability. When we put time with God first in our daily rhythm, personally and as a family. When we put our service to further God's mission first in our list of priorities and in our schedule. In other words, we don't take all the stuff from our agenda and put it into our calendar and then, oh man, there's just nothing left here to serve God. There's nothing left here um, for God. No, we honor God when we put him in our schedule first. Now, in the same way, we honor the Lord when we give to him first. Proverbs 3.9 says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Now, this was written to people who lived in an agriculturally-based economy. But the principle applies to us all. We honor God when we give to him first, right off the top, rather than on the basis of what's left at the end of the month. In 1 Corinthians 16.1, we read this. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. This verse gives a similar principle to the one we looked at a moment ago. It says on the first day of the week, we're to honor God and his kingdom first by setting aside a sum of money in proportion to our income for the church collection. In Malachi 3, God indicates that the starting point of our giving should be the tithe or 10% of our income. This is what it says. Will a man rob God? 
yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Now, there are those who believe that tithe no longer applies in an age of grace. But in Matthew 23, verse 23, we see Jesus affirming the tithe, and nowhere do we see Jesus abolishing the tithe. In fact, we have good reason to believe that Jesus himself tithed. Randy Alcorn likens the tithe to training wheels that parents put on their child's bicycle. It teaches them and helps them to learn to ride the bike. It's intended to train us. The tithe is intended to train us to put God first in our lives and that everything that we have comes from his gracious hand. It's a way of reminding ourselves of that. Alcorn says that in the same way that the law is a teacher that leads us to see our need for a savior in Jesus Christ, so the tithe is a teacher that starts us on the road of giving and leads us to see the rewards and the joys that actually comes through generosity. And consequently, we begin to experience the joy of giving and we give cheerfully even more than the tithe. When we give, we are inviting, and this is critical, folks. This is the reason why you need to put God first. When we are generous, we are inviting God to be supernaturally involved in every area of our lives. We aren't saying, God, stay out of my finances. We're not saying, God, stay out of this relationship. Because you know what? When you do that, that's going to be the area of your greatest frustration. Whatever you don't allow God into. But when you invite God to be part of every area of your life, including your finances, when you honor the Lord by following the principles for living and giving, he promises not only to meet your needs, read Philippians 4, but in 2 Corinthians 9, just a chapter later from the one we're looking at today, he also promises to enrich and to bless us in every way so that we can be a blessing and we can be generous to others on every occasion. So when you get your paycheck, give your first and your best to God. Secondly, pay the taxes that you owe. The Bible says in Romans 13, 5, therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities. And then in verse 7 it says, give everyone what you owe him. If, ta if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. I know I'm not making any friends talking about this, but... God calls us to be subject to the governing authorities. And that includes paying taxes that you rightfully owe. So first, give to the Lord and then pay your taxes. Thirdly, save for the future. Proverbs 21.20 says, The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. This verse says that a wise person does not presume on God but uses the mind and the common sense that God has given to him to anticipate future needs while the foolish man spends and consumes all of his resources without thought of the future at all. Now let me be clear, there is a difference between saving and hoarding. 
Hoarding is an attempt to so completely cover our material basis that we no longer need to exercise faith in God. We don't have to trust in him at all. And folks, that is not a good place to be with God. To save, on the other hand, means to put aside some provision for future needs, which God clearly calls us to do. Larry Burkett suggests that you seek to save at least 10% of your net income. So you give to the Lord. Second, pay your taxes. Third, save for the future. And then finally, pay your bills. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 13:8, let no debt remain outstanding. Now I'm sure that some of you have been doing the math in your heads. You're thinking to yourself, man, if I follow this formula, I'll never make it. I can't do it. Now, I want to be careful not to generalize because I know that there are unique circumstances represented here. But I think for most of us, the issue isn't can't do it. The issue is don't want to do it. It's tough putting a lid on spending. It's tough putting a lid on spending when merchandise starts glittering, clothing begins calling out, electronic gadgets beckon, and social pressure builds. You know, I'm sure most of us are aware that when the economy tanked about four to five years ago, uh, the United States was perhaps the nation that was hit the hardest with what happened. And yet, the National Retail Federation reported that during that very, very low time, around 2009, 2010, during that very low time, more than 172 million people went shopping and they spent on average over 7% more than the previous year, making it the biggest Black Friday weekend ever in terms of numbers of shoppers and amount of spending. At the lowest time in their economic history. A few years ago, the Calgary Herald had an article entitled, Alberta Consumers Love Their Toys. And the article went on to point out that despite hard economic times, Canadians as a whole, and Albertans in particular, continue to spend huge sums of money on buying luxuries. The article went on to point out that Alberta leads all the other provinces in most of the items purchased including golf equipment, vans, trucks, dishwashers, computers, cell phones, and on and on the list goes. You see, the facts don't lie. For most of us, the problem isn't one of income. It's a willingness to live happily within our means. The first principle for financial freedom is to trust God. The second is to plan wisely. The third is to live simply. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus, out of love for us, intentionally denied himself and took on human flesh so that through his life and sacrifice on the cross, we might be brought back in right relationship with our Heavenly Father. And Paul is saying here that when it comes to our time, the abilities that God's entrusted to us and the money that he's given to us, 
our attitude needs to be the same as that of Jesus Christ. As Christ's followers, we are called to be mindful of the needs of others. In Philippians 2.3, Paul says, Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Every dollar we invest in one direction is one less dollar available to invest in another direction. Every hour we devote to one cause is one less hour available to devote to another cause. And so Paul is challenging us here to plan our lives in such a way that we can have a maximum impact in our world for Christ. And one of the key ways we do this is to live more simply. Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your lives free from not money, but the love of money. And be content with what you have. This is really saying, stay away from the, the, the cult of more the, and, and the financial bondage that often comes with it. The Bible teaches that walking away from the cult of more will involve having a deep-seated conviction that God is totally trustworthy in what he says about our stuff, what he says about what's successful, and also what he says about what true security is in this life. We have to make a decision whether we're going to believe him or not. Jesus calls us to be all in and to order our lives according to his principles. And Hebrews 13 says that involves living simply by being content with what we have and keeping our lives free from the cult of more. Living simply means that you ask the Lord to direct your financial decisions. You involve him in your financial decisions. It means you and those closest to you prayerfully seek his direction on how to invest that which he's entrusted to you. Living simply means that you buy things for their usefulness rather than for their status. It means being more open to buying used rather than new. You know, years ago, when Gwen and I moved to Chicago uh, so that I could pursue studies at Wheaton College, we, we contemplated saving hundreds of dollars by buying a perfectly good used mattress for $50. But someone in our family who will go unmentioned, uh, that person cautioned us against doing so and basically said, well, you, you never know who slept on this. And yet this family member thought nothing of the fact that they were spending $100 a night to sleep on a used mattress in a five-star hotel all the way down to Chicago. <laughs> Living simply means you won't purchase that which you can't afford, even if it's an amazing deal. Not even a good deal is worth getting into bondage over if you can't afford it. Living simply means that you learn to enjoy things without owning them. You know, you enjoy someone's vacation home. Don't think you have to go buy your own too. Enjoy it. Enjoy this world that God's given to us. It's all free. So many things we can enjoy. Be open to sharing things that you only use once in a while. Living simply means you're aware of how things add up. 
Like water from a leaky faucet, money trickles through our hands. You know, a toonie for a coffee, a couple of toonies for a latte don't seem like much. But over time, they add up to thousands of dollars. Living simply means that you will wait and pray before you make a purchase, allowing God to show you whether this is a real need or whether this is a created need. Particularly when it's a more substantial purchase, take some time just to take a breather and to really seek the heart of God. I love the story of the fellow who hit a major snowstorm which required him to stay a few days with the Amish. After showing him his room, the host turned to the visitor and he said, oh, by the way, if there is anything that you need, just let us know and we will show you how to get along without it. (laughs) Right on. Living simply means that you find your satisfaction in God and God alone. As you fall in love with Jesus a little more each day and you respond to his assignments and then you watch him do little miracles or perhaps even significant miracles in and through you, your faith in God will just come alive and you will find less and less of a need to put little band-aids on your sore soul by living a consumptive lifestyle. You find yourself agreeing with King David when he said, my God satisfies. I want to close by having you hear the story of another couple from our church who discovered that true satisfaction and joy is found in God and not in the temporary things of life. Watch this. the excitement of buying a you know a brand new house in like a great community and we were so happy and then what we were left with was a giant mortgage payment um we couldn't furnish it properly the excitement soon turned into i guess like pain and frustration and anxiety we were living what we thought was the dream it turned out to be the nightmare which essentially turned out to be our nightmare and we were really living life for just the things, I guess, of this world. Um, Things that are very temporary, that, you know, take um, payments or take um, a lot of time away from the things that we truly value. And so when we couldn't pay, you know, our phone bills and our heat bill, we still, you know, prioritized going to the mall and buying things. You know, couldn't keep up on our bills, yet we went out and bought um, like a 62-inch plasma TV. Those payments would just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where they're calling you and You don't want to answer your phone. You don't want to answer your phone anymore. I know one thing we weren't living for is we really weren't living for, I guess, God. And we really weren't living any sort of life, I guess, of obedience. And so we just kind of were floating through through life and our, you know, our relationship was suffering because of it. Our parenting and just every area of our life was um, just totally, totally off track. We would fight. We would argue. Um... We had different visions for where, you know, when I was paid, where that money should go. And so that created, you know, a tension in the house. And, you know, for me, it was a lot of selfishness. And for Colleen, it was like, you know, we need to feed the family. So rock bottom for us was 
having um, just our, our power turned off. I remember Kirk coming home from work and I asked him, I said, did you get paid? And he said, no, and I just bawled my eyes out. Being, you know, the husband, the dad, um, the, essentially the leader of the family, and you're letting your family down, it kills you. And it just, it made me think that, you know, maybe there's more to life. We actually met a couple at our church, Chris and Sue, who just came into our life and had just started to, to question things that none of our friends questioned. Do you want to be a stay-at-home mom? How bad do you want that? Do you want to work on your marriage? Do you want to, you know, prosper in, in areas of your life, like giving, like being generous? I guess they just really, I guess, exposed things to us, how we were living and how it was completely against everything that we had believed in. And Kirk and I were, were like, well, why are we killing ourselves to pay for this house or pay for this um, lifestyle if it, in the end, you know, our house is gonna cost us our marriage? We realized that a lot of our values in our life had to change and that God had to be number one value in our life. And so I remember coming home one weekend and we decided to make the decision to move. And we were scared. We, were, we didn't know if this was the right decision. Honestly, we prayed about it and God just said, go with it. You're gonna feel so much more free and your phone's gonna stop ringing, so. <laughs> After it was sold and we moved, you know, into a place like this. Um, it was very freeing and um, it allowed us to make great decisions to, you know, just to pay for things in cash, buy a vehicle for, you know, a thousand dollars. That, you know, people don't think like that anymore. People think uh, day to day, month to month, I need the newest. And we just switched the way we thought. It wasn't until we sold our house we really realized just how debt had just made us so selfish. Debt is really hard because you're only able to think about you. And then it doesn't allow you to be generous in any way, not even with your time, your money, nothing. Our lifestyle was one that didn't allow us to be generous with even tithing. I just like to share a Bible verse that I believe that would really sum up um, just I guess our journey. Um, it's Romans 4, 20. No unbelief or distrust made him waver, doubtingly questioned concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong and was empowered by faith as he gave praise and glory to God. So yeah, even within, you know, selling our house and, um, and that, you know, our faith did grow in doing something that, you know, really didn't make a lot of sense to us. Um, but that, yeah, we have grown and we have been empowered and we have, um, just yeah, really flourished. We really don't think like how we used to think. Um, we look at money as more so as a tool to help and bless people, but not something that defines who we are. We're very generous with our time now and helping mm -hmm. people. Um, a lot of people take that extra time they have and you know, it's sitting in front of a TV or surfing the internet. Mm. Whereas we would rather, you know, give our time to help somebody figure out their life. At the end of the day, your house does not give you a hug. When you open that front door, who comes and runs and gives you the biggest hug is your kids and your wife. And it's totally worth changing your value system if you can think that way, so. I'm just crying, so. No matter what he calls you to do, 
whether it's being a stay-at-home mom, whether it's, you know, in ministry, like, it doesn't matter. Every, he's called us all to do something great, and He's all given us enough power to complete that. something Kurt said at the very end of the video uh, was at the end of the day your house doesn't give you a hug it's the people that you love who do and that pretty much puts it all in perspective doesn't it Chuck Swindle put it this way he says money can buy you a nice house but not a home a fancy bed but no peaceful sleep Companions, but not genuine friends. Sex, but not love. Pills, but not health. Fun, but not fulfillment. He says, money can buy us everything but true satisfaction and take us everywhere but heaven. You know, friends, as your pastor, how I long for us all to get this. And I want to remind us again, the only thing that, that we can invest in that's going to matter for eternity, the only thing that we can rescue or take with us from this planet through the saving grace of Jesus Christ is people. That's it. Moments after we die, we'll know exactly how we should have lived. Moments after we die, we'll know exactly where we should have invested the time, the abilities, and the money that God entrusted to us. We will see it with the clarity of eternity. But you see, we're still in a position to change the trajectory of our lives, our values, and our priorities. My question is, what will you do with the time the things that God has entrusted you with. Will you use your affluence to impress others in this life? Or will you use your affluence to influence others for eternity? May what will be most important to us then become most important to us now. Would you stand with me for closing prayer? Before I pray, I want to remind you that if you would like some practical wisdom in the area of finances, be sure to sign up for the First Things First course in the atrium being held on November 29th and December 13th. Also, last week we had a stormy Sunday. Um, many of you were unable to be here. I want to encourage you to uh, just go online and watch last week's message on contentment. I believe that it's a word that God wants all of us to hear. Those of you who are baptized in this second service, would you make your way up here so we can bless you and congratulate you for taking this step of obedience? Come as I pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word, its clear direction regarding 
the purpose of our lives and how you want us to invest what you've given to us. We thank you for freeing us up spiritually, Lord, for making us free indeed through the sacrificial death of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for showing us how to be free financially. Not free from you, not free from our need of you, but free from the bondage of debt. I pray that you would give us the wisdom and the courage to walk away from the glitter of stuff that we don't need and to say my soul is already satisfied in Jesus. Oh Lord, I pray that you will help us to be a people who will put you first in everything, in our living, our serving, and our giving for your glory and for the sake of all those who need the Jesus that we know and love. For I prayed in the precious name of Jesus. Just call on up here, guys. Come on up here. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let's again just congratulate these folks. on your way out, if you run into one of them, be sure to uh, just um, encourage them and, and uh, congratulate them. If you have a prayer need, there are prayer um, partners that would love to pray with you before you go. God bless you as you go. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.